Hey there, Moto America fans. This is Paul Carruthers, the communications manager, and this is Off Track, our weekly motorcycle racing podcast. I'm joined, as always, by Sean Bice. And Sean, how are you today? You know, I'm good. We just had a rainstorm come through, and anyway, I'm sitting in the car, but not because I'm still driving back from Road America. I didn't make it back from that trip here to Ohio, but uh, yeah, so if I sound even more bizarre and boomier than normal that's that's why i've got a little concert going on here right just in my car so um very very excited about our guest today though excited to talk to him yeah and i was uh you know before we change the subjects and and talk to our guest uh i I thought the road america event was was about as perfect as you could get considering the circumstances we were all working under yeah i mean let's talk about that for a minute because it, it it was admittedly weird I mean, it was weird for us because we're so used to going down into the paddock and, you know, talking to the riders, talking to the teams and everybody was so into social distancing and wearing their masks that sometimes it was difficult to even recognize people. And other times, you know, it was hard to talk to them just because of masks and things like that. And it was weird on the podium because as as excited as we all were about the winners and they were about themselves, it it really it's obviously a sport for fans and without our fans and the energy that they bring it's 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 really hard to to have racing like that so but we did get it done so it was actually i didn't think it was odd as as what i anticipated it to be i thought obviously the podium ceremonies were a lot different and you know with 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 the announcers and stuff interviewing them with a boom mic and then us going in the press conference behind the winner circle with it just being us and the riders and social distancing and all that but when it really hit me that it was different was when like you'd go out where the to places where there were ordinarily crowds and there was just nobody there and then it kind of turned into um you know feeling like it was a a, a test session or something you know but Man, the once they once once they actually dropped the flag and started racing motorcycles, to me it was no different. Oh man, the on track action was so good. I mean, all the battles were good, and it really it really was absolutely the same. And and you know the riders even said that. I mean they you know when they're they don't when they're on their sighting lap or obviously on their cool down lap, that's when they really notice the fans. But when they're in race mode and going around the track, they're as they're focused anyway. So probably from that perspective, it was no different for them. And and certainly for us, it wasn't either. I mean, I think the biggest thing for me is, you know, the fact that, you know, I like to get out and try to talk to as many people as I can. And, you know, you don't feel comfortable and, you know, recognize people. So I was like, ah, I can't. I, I think I talked the least that that weekend. Well, I talked to you a lot, so I made up for it. But yeah, see, you <laughs> like to talk a lot. So it's probably you, you notice it more than that, more than I did. I don't want to talk to anybody anyway. So I just, you know, it was perfect for me. <laughs> exactly so anyway look let's let's get oh one one thing i got to talk about real quick is like i don't know it it, about you or what your your thoughts were on it but i thought cameron bobier just has taken things to a complete other level you see this with guys it's funny because with him i thought we probably had already seen that but i think this shows that we 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 may have thought we saw him at his best but we hadn't yet and I don't know if you agree with me, but he was he was on a complete other level from from the time they rolled the thing out of the truck. You know, he's just ripping off 12s when no one else is even close. And, and all he did was get faster. And it was just like, I think he's just full of confidence. I think he had a good off season, And I think he's just he's he's just turned a page on those guys. 
Yeah, and I mean, with with Cameron, it, it's so effortless when he does it. You know, I, I know in the past, I've I've witnessed him doing things, and I've told him this before, and I've seen, I've seen heck, I've seen Kevin do this. I've seen Wayne, lots of writers, do things that I'm like, I don't even know how you just did what you did. And I used to say that to Cameron a lot of times. But he was on such a different level that he, he didn't even do some things that really seem miraculous. It just looked like he was very calm on the bike. He's got a quiet confidence to him. And I know that Richard is full on in love with the kid and, and the feedback he provides. And despite, you know, the issues that they were having with the oil level or whatever during that, you know, he was completely unfazed by anything that was going on. He just got on the bike and had confidence that he was going to be able to ride it. So it was it was absolutely something to see him. He, he is on another plane. Yeah, those guys, um, you know, hopefully they can they can get things together a little bit better and 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 close the gap a little bit because they're. They're a little bit behind now, but I think, uh, you know, things, the way things go, they, everyone usually gets a little bit more competitive and I think they'll gain on them. I'm not sure about beating them yet, but, um, at least it gives them something to shoot for. Anyway, look, let's get started with our guest today. I'm excited about this. Um, I've known Kevin Schwantz since he was a young lad and I, I was actually pretty young myself, but not quite as young as him. But, uh, you know, I remember seeing him race when he first came to AMA racing and, and I was told, you know, you got to watch this Kevin Schwantz kid. And I think my first race, I wasn't even working for Cycle News, but I was covering the event for for Cycle News at, at Sears Point or Infineon Raceway is what it's known as now. And by the time I got there, he'd already broken his collarbone riding somebody's Ducati. So I didn't get to see him ride. But from then on, you know, obviously my career and his career, we, we, were, we were pretty much in the same spot, at least when he was in AMA racing. It wasn't here for that long, but it was fun to watch him ride. It was fun to watch him. Is he Kevin was just always a great guy to work with because he was he he liked to have fun and 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 him and I had a lot of fun together. We got into trouble together. We did all kinds of of, of good stuff and bad stuff, but we always had a good time. But what I liked about Kevin is he was he was always that way. You know, he he never really changed. Even when he was world champion, he didn't change. He's always just been the same guy that I remember when he was you know, 20 years old or whatever. So that's, that's kind of cool. But anyways, our guest today obviously is Kevin Schwantz, 1993 500cc world champion. And we're not even going to get fired for having him on the show. Everyone's like, oh, you're having Kevin <laughs> Schwantz on the show? What's your boss going to say about that? <laughs> Actually, Wayne was the one that set this thing up. He's like, oh, you got to have Kevin on the podcast. I'm like, oh, really? He's like, oh, yeah, it'll be great. Have Kevin on the podcast. So the, here we have today Kevin Schwantz. Um, obviously, his his rivalry with our boss Wayne Rainey is is well known throughout the world. Um, these guys raced together from the beginning until the end. And uh, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Sean. Um, I, I guess the first things first. Happy 59th birthday yesterday, Paul Carruthers. <laughs> oh, you bastard! Yes. Old man, <laughs> you know, old man Paul. God dang it! 59. I. I, I I thought I just, you and I were closer to the same age. I didn't know you were that much older than me. Yeah, well, I'm, 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 shut up. It's not that much. I'm actually, I think I'm like six, six months younger than Wayne. So it kind of goes Wayne, me, you, um, yeah. unfortunately in the wrong order. But anyways, I'd be in the middle either way. But like, yeah. I, I, 59, I mean, a couple of I weeks, will, I'm going to be 56. So yeah, we're, we're all, we're all getting there together. I woke up yesterday at 59 and I'm like, holy crap. The 59 part doesn't bother me, but that 60 number is, I, I don't know how I'm going to do with that. 
to be honest. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I deal with it. I mean, at least, you know, the goal is to still be here when I'm 60. So let's do that first <laughs> and then worry about it. Right. But anyway, thanks yeah. for that, Kevin. I, you know, just for anybody who didn't know how freaking old I was, I'm glad you just spilled the beans. I should have just said happy birthday, but I had to throw the digit in there too, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The birthday would have been fine because everybody probably thinks I'm, what, 40, 42, Sean? Yeah, no, I, you definitely project younger than your age. So, you know, but, it, you know, 59 is a new 39. So, you know, don't sell it All short. Right. You're, you're good. Well, let's go with that. But so, Kevin, yeah. how are you? I know, I know you've been fishing, which you, I think it's one of your, uh, it's one of your main hobbies at this point in retirement, right? It really is, and it's really easy to social distance when you're fishing. I don't, I don't, I don't want, you know, you guys were talking about a race without any fans. I was like, that sounds like the perfect race. Just <laughs> right. to go there, get done, do the work, not have to go with all, all you know, the fans are the, are the biggest part of it, and that's what I loved about the sport. But, wow, to go there and, and not have fans, um, you know, getting to and from the truck, getting to and from – your car, getting in the track and out of the track, no traffic doing, I mean, there's, there's a lot of pluses to it, but uh, like you guys were talking about the podium celebration, you know, spraying the champagne just into the air and not on the fans and having people yelling and screaming, standing there uh, makes all the difference in the world. As a rider, you get a lot of motivation from the, from the fans. That's for sure. Let's talk a little bit about early days for you. Um, obviously the AMA championship, which I just, I talked, I touched on briefly. Um, and, and most of that was spent with Yoshimura Suzuki, if not all of it, it was, is it, was it strange to you when you heard that Yosh wasn't going to be around this year? Uh, you, you know, Yosh has, has been kind of the, the part of Suzuki's racing since I was there. And even before I was there, I mean, Wes Cooley and Aldana and some of those guys, um, pops had kind of seemed like got Suzuki into racing here in America. But, um, you know, I, John and the, the M4 guys uh, had a weekend that I'm sure they were trying to forget about uh, racing wise at Elkhart. But, um, and, you know, that's just the way it goes. Sometimes you have good weekends, sometimes you have bad. But um, like you said, I think Cameron Bobier and uh, Stamboli and the attack guys have really um, – brought that Yamaha to another level and, and Cameron's riding it better than he ever has. When you get to that point where you start, I mean, when you, it's like, it's, I think Kevin's just, or Kevin, I think Cameron's just gotten to that point this year. I mean, he's obviously had success. He's a four-time champion, but I've never seen him like where he just, you can tell he just, he kind of rolls out of bed and he expects to just go dominate. And then, <laughs> but, but you've had that in your career. Is that, that's like a feeling that like, I mean, it's got to be the best feeling in the world when you just have that much confidence and you have things working for you that well. You know, it, it really is. You get a bike um, that, that you like that you don't think the mechanics have to do much to it from one track to the other. It's just sitting there ready to go as fast as it possibly can. It's forgiving. You may push the front a little bit, but it doesn't tuck real quick and throw you on the ground. Um you know, the, those bikes are, are far and few between. And, uh, you know, the confidence you get riding one can make all the difference in the world and in what the results are. I mean, you could be a couple seconds off the pace, uh, do a little testing, come back to the next event. If, you, if you've gotten that confidence in that motorcycle, uh, even in a place like Elkhart, I mean, fast, big, long straightaways, a couple of them, um, but some technical sections of it too. And, and Cameron was just dominant everywhere. 
Kevin, I want to ask you about when you were racing in, in AMA Superbike, and I want to I want to bring up the fact that we had Ben Spees on recently, and I was surprised that he told us if it wasn't for how his career ended up going the way it did, he probably would have been perfectly content with the way his personality was and being a little introspective. He would have he would have been perfectly happy to stay in AMA Superbike and and collect championships. He didn't. He said that he didn't really have huge aspirations to to go on to the world level and you know obviously you did well when you raced in ama superbike was that was was your heart set and your goal to race in in grand prix oh you know i i think once i got to the ama level i was just happy being there um you know and, and steve mclaughlin called one day and said hey do you want to go to the match races and it was in 86 i was like well of course i want to go what do you mean get go to europe and ride a motorcycle of course i do i didn't ask you know, I told him it just needed to be a Suzuki. And it was Tony Rudder's, who is Michael Rudder's dad, who's Tony had just recently passed away, but it was Tony's bike from 1985 for the Isle of Man. It was pretty much a standard bike. It had a few uh, modifications to the engine, but I went over there and just rode what I didn't, you know, I didn't like, I need a factory spec bike. I just went to go race. I wanted to race more motorcycles. I just wanted to, I wanted to, to, to do as much as I could. And when I was there, I met Barry Sheen. And of course, Barry was, you got to get off those super bikes. You need to go Grand Prix race. And we got to get you over here to do some races. And, um, you know, the, the season of 85 was on an older Suzuki. The season of 86 was the first year on a GSXR. It had some teething problems. We had some mechanical issues. Uh, I was crashing it every now and then too, but uh, to be able to, 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 to meet Barry as early as I did, uh, he was the one that kind of took me under his wing and got me into Grand Prix racing. Had he not done that, I, I very easily could have just been stuck here racing superbikes. And that stuck, but yeah, maybe not been able to make that next step. So the part two of that question is regarding Cameron. Now, he's... He's kind of said, you know, he's very content in the U.S. I mean, he's, he's being well paid. He's obviously winning championships in a lot of races. And he does have aspirations to work, to race on the world championship level. But, you know, he, he it seems like the fans and other people almost want him to do that more than sometimes he does. And he wants it to be the right situation that he can get into. I mean, can you identify with that, with the fact that his position where it's at in the U.S.? And can you understand why he maybe is is not so like hey, hold on not so fast i i've got a good thing going here i want to want to keep doing it does that make sense to you absolutely and you know cameron's been to europe he's ridden he's ridden some grand prix bikes and uh you know he kind of struggled and not that he struggled but he just had that you know probably the the best or for him the worst teammate ever in mark marquez uh you know to to go there and and have have to try and figure out how to to be competitive with that guy, I'm sure would be difficult for anybody. Um, Cameron's doing a great job here in the U.S. He's a great rep for for Yamaha, for Attack, for everybody that he's uh, affiliated with, and um, you know, go to the races on on Thursday, go fly home Sunday night or Monday morning, not have to travel the world. Uh, it, it is it's it's easier, it's more simple, uh, but you know, s striving to be the best that you can possibly be would mean you'd not need to try and win a world championship, but not to take anything away from what Cameron's accomplished. But, uh, you know, I'm sure deep down inside, if the right opportunity was presented to him to go get on a competitive bike, uh, and compete in Moto2 or Moto GP, uh, he'd jump at the opportunity.
Let's go back a little bit again, because I remember when you first went to Europe, you were doing those wild card rides on on. I don't know if they were old beater 500 Suzuki's or what they were exactly, <laughs> but I I remember I was at Le Mans. I, I couldn't tell you the year. Um, 87, I guess it would have been 86. And mm, you, you crashed in the, uh, you crashed in the, I think it was in the way in the rain, you crashed in the rain, broke the foot peg off. And then I'm standing there taking photos and here you come by and your foot's like just on the exhaust pipe and you still rode the crap out of it. And you still made an impression enough that people wanted to eventually, you know, have you on the Suzuki factory team. It doesn't seem, I don't, I don't want to say it's not possible anymore, but it doesn't seem like, you know, a, a, a young guy from a, say from America can go over there and make such an impression anymore. Like just by like riding around the outside of people and, and just doing all the things where you just like, you can notice a guy that's in 10th place and you're like, oh my God, that guy's something special. You know, it, how is it's, that? Um, I, I think back then there were a lot of bikes that were close to being competitive. You know, that were were right there on the cusp of of maybe not a, a factory Yamaha, or a factory Honda, and at the time, factory Suzuki wasn't wasn't involved. They were racing some some older bikes, some older square fours, and actually, that's not true. Eighty seven, they had just got the RGV five hundred, so I was actually on a V four that day. Um, so it was a development bike at that point. I knew when 87 finished, um, my contract for, for the remainder of my career was, uh, with Suzuki Grand Prix team. So it was with the Japanese and I was, uh, I, I was excited about a new motorcycle. You know, we'd been riding the square four mostly in 86. We got to test it, the, the new V4 in 87. And, you know, I, th I think the great thing about me and Suzuki. Suzuki was just getting back into Grand Prix racing and I was there and they could follow my lead on what I needed and what I wanted as far as a bike went. So, um, you know, I, I, I think, uh, you know, I think there's still the opportunity for, there for, for somebody to go from a, a super bike or a world super bike ride into Grand Prix racing and, and be able to make an impression. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think the manufacturers and the teams all watch all the way from the top to the bottom of the field because you got to find that next young kid that might be running around in 10th or 12th place, but yet he's still doing incredible stuff on, on the machine that he's riding. All right, Kevin, let's jump to like 1988 Japanese Grand Prix. You tell me time and time again that I wasn't there. I've looked it up. I, you, you, you get me scratching my head. Like, was I there? I was there. <laughs> Jeff Haney was there. We, I think we even no, had noodles together. We went. John, to, John, what? John didn't send you. He didn't think you needed to be there. I went there. Uh, you know what? I don't think John was there anymore, <laughs> was he? Anyways, I, I was there. I was there, and I, the, I that was one of the that was about the one of the most impressive things I've seen in the fact that we we all knew how good you were, but that was still unexpected that you would go there and win that race. Absolutely. I how, couldn't agree more. How, un, how, how unexpected was it for you? <laughs> you know, we had gone uh, and tested a month earlier. It was a really cold, blustery day, and, and we had heard that Honda had been there testing and McKenzie had gone to, I think, back then the time was 2 minutes and 15 seconds or something like that. And uh, I got right down to the same exact time McKenzie had done. And 
when it finally, the end of the day was finally decent enough conditions to get a good time in. Um, and, and so I left there with quite a bit of confidence, then went to Daytona, broke my arm in practice, rode anyway, won the race, and then had to go, had a week off before we had the, the Grand Prix in Japan. And, um, you know, it, it rained and the track was soaking wet until the end of morning warm up. It was still wet everywhere, morning warm up. So nobody had a dry setup, but the race was run in perfectly dry conditions. And so we went back to the setup that we had when I did the lap times that I'd done when we were there testing. And, um, you know, everything worked out, worked out great for us. I, I remember the cool off lap thinking, golly, you know, now what, what do you do now? Where, <laughs> what, what happens? What, what do they do when this, you know, when, when, when you go into the park farm, what do they do? Where's it? What's all the media going to be? You know, I was, uh, it seemed like it took me about five minutes to do my cool off lap, but, uh, I was, uh, I was a pretty happy kid. Yeah, I bet you were. Well, I mean, I know you were. <laughs> Hey, Kevin, one of the things about many, many things that you're known for um, with your career is is the work that you've done with mentoring younger riders. Um, I witnessed it a few years ago uh, up close when you worked with Blake Young a lot with Yosh. And uh, I know you've worked with with Joe Roberts quite a bit. And, you know, John Hopkins, I believe you worked with back in the day a little bit as well. Um, I want to ask you about what's, you know, our present situation, get your take on it. Um, versus really when you started and what you see and what you think is the key. Now, we, of course, have a junior cup class and uh, then super, well, we have Twins Cups, Super Sport, Stock 1000, and Superbike. We have sort of, I call them rungs on the ladder to develop within our series, starting with junior cup for a younger rider. But now we've got this mini cup by Motul as well, where we've got young younger riders on these ovales. So, I mean, I think about when we were younger and we didn't have such a clear pathway to learn how to ride a motorcycle, learn racecraft, and, and get into Moto America and move up through the series. Um, AMA always had support classes and they had ways to develop, you know, a, in a smaller displacement class or whatever. But can you compare that to your career and how you started and then what you've done with mentoring riders over the years? And, and finally, do you think that these this idea that we're trying to do with Moto America, what, what are we missing in, in our classes and uh, as far as getting riders ready for the world level? You know, the, I guess the one thing that I see the Europeans doing, uh, especially over the past 10 or 15 years, have done so well, is that is getting kids at really, really young ages on pocket bikes. I think you said, are they called ovales? Ovales, yeah. yeah. The, the ovales, you know, stuff like that, 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 are, that are decent handling motorcycles, that are, you know, small wheels. You can run them on a go-kart track. And, um, you know, I think kids are honing their skills to where, you know, by the time they're they're old enough to go race, uh, you know, in one of the national championships or one of the European championships or maybe just championship for their country, um, they're they're as soon as they get on a on a good bike, they're they're performing at the very top level. And um, you know, for us, 16's kind of been the number. You can't do anything before you're 16. Anytime we've tried to do something, uh, the USGPRU or Red Bull Rookies Cup and stuff like that. This doesn't seem like it sticks around long enough, um, but you know I, I, it's great. I think the class structure that Moto America has right now is is good. Um, you know the Junior Cup is 
390s, 400s, R3s. Is there any R3s? I think they were all Ninja 400s, weren't they? There's a couple of there's a couple R3s, but mostly Kawasaki 400s. Yeah, just yeah. yeah. And uh, you, know, you know, I think that's a great uh, a great proven ground to see if you know road racing is really something you want to do and 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 practice it at a you know at a little bit lesser level. Uh, you know, the Twins Cup I think is uh, is great. It's good to see some a good mix of motorcycles in there. SV 650s, Yamaha MTs, MT 07s or something is I think the base of most of them. But yep. I think that's a great class straight on into stock thousand or super sport 600. Uh, you know, I think the stepping stones are all there. Uh, it, in the days when I raced, I, I don't think there was a whole lot. You know, yeah, there were 600 super sport, 750 super sport, and then super bikes. And um, I, I, I guess I did well enough in my test with Yoast that I, I went straight from amateur racing on a production 600 in my RZ350 straight on to. Uh, the Suzuki Superbike in 86, 85. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think there's steps that need to be made that, you know, kids now need to go from 400s to 600s into 750s or on to thousands uh, and then work their way into Superbikes. Um, like we've seen, uh, I think Jack Miller is the one that comes come, that I that think of quickest. He was... Um, I think he was a Red Bull Rookies Cup kid. He went, he won Moto3, uh, did really well, didn't win the championship and went straight from there to MotoGP. And next year he's on a factory Ducati. So, you know, there's a lots of different ways, a bunch of different ways to get there. Uh, and it's, it's just each, each rider is a little bit different. Some can take that big gigantic step and go straight from a, you know, production bike, maybe a, a 400 or a 650. Uh, straight up to a, a superbike or a world superbike or possibly even a Moto2, MotoGP bike. But age and uh, experience has a lot to do with it. And I think the, the Europeans have been beating us here recently at, at doing it with kids at a lot younger younger age than us. But uh, this, is, this is probably a loaded question as a follow-up to this, but per, specific to your career and the fact that you started riding motorcycles when you were four and you had the benefit of, I think, your mom and dad having a dealership is – well as your uncle Daryl racing and all that was that was that the environment that were you were you sort of born into an environment of riding motorcycles and racing and and, and obviously that that helped you at a young age would you say oh absolutely you know if i if i didn't get in so much trouble at school that uh you know i, I came home and i was grounded but both parents were at the dealership from from when it opened until it closed and so when i finished school i went to the shop most of the time I got to ride my motorcycle and, you know, I'd ride it until mom and dad were honking the horn saying, come on time. Let's get, let's get home. We got to go, we got to go eat dinner. Um, support. Uh, my mom and dad were always there 100%. Uh, you know, whether it was it while they had the dealership and, and supporting me uh, and whether I was trials riding or motocross riding or flat tracking or road racing, uh, you know, they, they, they helped me out with supplies and stuff from the shop. Um, I got a bit greedy when I first started road racing and they gave me an FJ 600. And then I said, well, I want an RZ 352 or RZ, RZ 350 also. And, uh, <laughs> my, my, my dad said, no, I'm, you're, uh, you can uh, Ford motor credit will finance one for you. We'll co-sign. You can pay for it yourself. So I had to buy my second race bike, but, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, my, my parents uh, were, were supportive. It, it, they sold the dealership just about the time I started racing professionally. So they got to travel to all the races and, 
hang out with the Carruthers a lot. <laughs> you know, so you talked about this RZ350, and it's funny. I've never talked to you about this or asked you about it, but the one thing I've always realized about you is back in that era, I you very well if you know it's funny how as you guys developed i mean wayne with all of his championships with yamaha and gp and you so associated with suzuki but if you think back to that time period when you were racing that rz you very well could have been a yamaha rider you started out early on a yamaha and then it suddenly took a left turn and i've talked to john ulrich about that a little bit so can you can you tell that story about what happened and and it's true right you could have very well been a yamaha guy at one point well, my, my parents owned a Yamaha dealership, and my uncle rode at dirt track race uh, Yamahas his whole career. Um, but in about the time that I got the tryout with Yosh at the end of 85, uh, end of 84, sorry, yeah, end of 84, I, um, my, my, my uncle took the opportunity to call uh, Kenny Clark, maybe, racing director Yamaha at that point. Yeah, and he Ken said, Clark, that's we don't, right. We don't have... Yeah, King Clark. We don't have any. We don't have anything coming Superbike wise. If he's got something that that's gonna, you know, get him to the races and get him on a competitive bike, he better take it. So, um, you know, I, I went and jumped at the opportunity to ride the Yosh bike uh, in a, in eighty in eighty five, and that led to a two year contract with American Suzuki for eighty six eighty seven. Still on Yoshimura prepared bikes, but with factory support as well. So, um, you know it. It, it, it's funny because in 89, at the end of 89, I did everything I could to go ride a Yamaha because all I wanted to do was ride exactly what Wayne Rainey, what Wayne Rainey was riding and beat him on the same exact equipment. <laughs> I, my, my dad and I talked uh, several trips to Japan and it ended up a phone call back that said, you know what? We think Grand Prix Racing's in a really good place right now. Honda's got couple guys yamaha's got a couple guys and we feel like if kevin leaves suzuki that who knows they, they they may even stop racing we don't know but um you know I, I, that was the biggest attempt i made ever to get off of a suzuki and i'm i'm glad it didn't come to fruition because uh i enjoyed my career at suzuki okay the, we we can't go through this conversation without talking a little bit about the rivalry rivalry with god i can't even speak rivalry with rain Rivalry with rain. It's hard, it's hard, to, it's it's, hard to say. It's Elmer Fudd. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the rivalry with Wayne. But anyway, <laughs> you guys raced together, and I was, I was, believe me, I was there, and I saw it, and I was a part of it, in that I was working for Cycle News, and and Sean, it was like, I, I was nervous when I talked to when I was talking to Wayne if Kevin saw me, and vice versa, because. I just was kind of like caught in, the, I, I, I mean, I liked them both, obviously, and I was friends with both and had a lot of respect for both, but it was like an odd situation that I didn't want the other one seeing me with the other one. You know what I mean? It was kind of that kind of a situation, <laughs> but, um, so I, I did my best to tiptoe through the, the tulips, so to speak, and, and get by with that and be friends with both of them. But the, the rivalry was such that it was. I mean, I think it's more, it was actually more than a lot of people think it was. I mean, I remember one time, Sean, we, Kevin had crashed at Brainerd. I've told this story before and I'm going to tell it again. Kevin had crashed at Brainerd in turn one, which was like, you know, 180 miles an hour or whatever, and somehow was able to, uh, to, to, to function sort of after that. I mean, he had a bit of a limp and 
we, we were supposed to play tennis that same evening after practice. So of course I, when I went up to Kevin, I'm like, okay, we're not playing tennis. Well, he, he said, no, we're playing tennis. I'm like, why? He says, Wayne's room's right there in front of the tennis court. And I, I, I need to, he needs to see me still playing tennis, even though I'm hurt. So we went out there and we played tennis. And of course, Wayne's room was right there. And I don't know if he, if he'd copped us saying that he saw us or whatever, but anyway, so that, that's what it was. It was like, it was so intense that those guys, that it was, I think there was, I think it was hatred. Um, but what I, what I want to talk about now is the fact that, you know, we, as we age, we tend to, I, I know there's, there's not a lot of people in the world that I don't like, but even the ones that I don't, haven't liked, now it seems like I don't want to not like them anymore. I want to do what I can to be friends with them or, you know, to at least be civil. And I, I can see now that you and Wayne have kind of, you've evolved your relationship to the fact that, I mean, you're never going to be like best friends, but I mean, you, you've, you've gotten to the point where you guys can sit down and talk and have a beer and, and enjoy each other's company. Am I right? Yeah, absolutely. I forget how long ago it was, but I was in Laguna Seca uh, in Monterey for something. And actually, uh, Wayne offered up one of his bedrooms at the house. Uh, when he had that house, it was big enough for just about everybody in Monterey to stay at. Um, I was, <laughs> I was a long way from, I was a long way from him, but uh, no, he and I, I think um, hatred is absolutely the perfect description for it in the beginning. I mean, you couldn't put us in the same room and have either one of us even look in the same way at each other. We would stand and purposely stare the opposite direction just to never even acknowledge that the other person was in the room. Um, and then as we raced more and more, uh, I think respect uh, took over and, you know, we can uh, we can sit down and and talk about things now. You know, there's a, there's a little bit of a rough stretch there for a bit, but, um, you know, I, I, it's, it's funny to me to see, and, and Paul, you just touched on it, somebody that absolutely didn't, could not even stand to, to, to look at them, be in the same room when they hate, hated, hated to, to come to respect um, just about more than anybody else in, in, in my entire career. Right. Now, looking back at it as well, I mean, the, the fact that you guys had the rival, rivalry that you had, I mean, that's what made you guys what you were. If you, if you didn't have a Wayne Rainey and if he didn't have a Kevin Schwantz, you guys might, have, might not have progressed as quickly or even made it to the point that you did. Does that sound right as well? I mean, you may have, but didn't that just, I mean, it was enough drive. If you didn't have enough drive to begin with, that was enough to get you to the next level. Yeah, I, we're lucky we survived the the hatred portion of it because, um, you know, we took a couple pretty good st sticks at each other, sticks, stabs, pokes, whatever. Never actually gloves off, uh, helmets off, swinging at each other. But on on track, um, you know, one that comes to mind is Wayne running into me at uh, at Brands Hatch at one of the match races. Committed to this right hand downhill corner, and I mean just just getting to the apex, and I mean bam. Here comes the Honda battering ram coming through. <laughs> um, you know, we, 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 never, we never banged fairings once we got on the Grand Prix bikes. But we cannot say that about super bikes. And uh, we, I think we tested um, track limits, uh, just how, how, much, how much elasticity body work had, how, how hard you could hit somebody with something before it actually started breaking things. 
but um, yeah, it's uh, it's all good now. You know, it's funny. I got it. I have to add a story to that. I this was Kevin. I don't know if you'll remember this, but a few years ago, back when I was working as a press officer for Yamaha, we had gotten invited to Wayne's house. The as you said, uh, the entire city of Monterey could fit in that house or Carmel or whatever. But uh, I went to this this get together one of the nights of the uh, Laguna Seca Moto GP weekend, and lo and behold, Kevin Schwantz is at a Wayne Rainey's party. So I had a moment where I got to spend some time sitting with you, you, Kevin, and I think I asked you about 35 questions in the space of about five minutes, but uh, (laughs) I had had a delightful conversation with you. And I can remember at one point, I think we were outside or something, and I remember looking in and I could see Mike Guerra, who's an assistant to Keith McCarty, kind of giving me this funny look. So later on, he said something. He goes, "What what are you doing talking to Kevin Schwantz? I said, you ever talk to the guy? He's actually quite a delightful guy to talk to. And Mike kind of gave me this look. And I'm like, hey, if Wayne invited him to his house, I think I can probably talk to him and it's all going to be good, good with Wayne. But, you know, it's funny. I think it's just the 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 culture and the uh, the tall tales about you guys. You know, we all wanted, wanted that rivalry to live. And it was always there. But um, obviously, it's, it's something that the fans probably held on to maybe longer than you guys did. And and honestly, Kevin, I have huge respect for you uh, anyway, but certainly from Suzuka a couple of years ago when you wore a replica of Wayne's helmet. I mean, that was absolutely cool that you did that. And that, that showed huge respect. Um, That was awesome. Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was, it was fun. It was, a, I think, kind of a surprise. Nobody really knew what was coming, but, uh, and I only got to do one stint on the bike. So uh, that year, anyway, I didn't do any stints the following year, but um uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, th- there's, there's, uh, it, it's gone full swing, that's for sure. Uh, from from hatred to to respect, to, you know, I, I got Wayne. The other day when this was being organized, I looked down at my phone and it's Wayne Rainey. I was like, oh my, wonder what I've done now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, he was just as de- de- delightful as he could be to talk to. You know, told me make sure to keep up with what's going on at Moto America and. I told him I would. I was happy to, and uh, you know that I'd give him my opinion on what I was seeing. Okay, a little bit more on that subject. When when most people think of you and and think of Wayne, they think of Wayne as, as this smooth guy who didn't really crash, and they think of you as being the wild guy who did crash quite a bit. Um, how much of that was actually the fact? of the different bikes that you guys were riding. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that the Suzuki was bad by any means, but do you feel a lot of the stuff was, was caused by the fact that you just had to override the bike? No, I, th- I think more than anything, um, Wayne, Wayne, I was just looking at the cycle news interview that was, that, that just got put up, um, 84, his first Grand Prix in South Africa. Mm-hmm. The first Grand Prix that he, I wrote a whole season of Grand Prix in '84, didn't he? So he started Grand Prix racing two fifties when I started production racing in '84. So I just, you know, I had a learning curve that in in ten years from when I started club racing on my FJ six hundred uh, in 1984 until I retired was just barely ten years. I I look at the the out of controlness uh, overriding overriding maybe just not knowing how to communicate well enough what i needed 
and the guys just having to kind of guess, my engineers having to kind of guess what it was that I wanted by watching. Um, but I, I just, I feel like I had to, I, I did it in such a short span of time that, um, you know, every, every, every lap of every practice and qualifying session was just input and knowledge uh, that, that I was, I was having to try and digest and figure out what to do with. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, it, it was just lack of experience and, I made some mistakes, you know, I made some, had some crashes. I crashed at somebody I was talking to the other day, 89, uh, Grand Prix in Jerez. Uh, I was six seconds in front. I was five seconds in front, six laps to go and Lawson's behind. Me. And I said, I just need one more good lap. If I can get to five seconds, five laps to go, no way can Eddie Lawson catch me a second lap. And I crashed and I crashed that very lap because I had a radial front tire on and the Michelin guys had told me, Kevin, that tire is going to be junk about five to go. You better start, you better be ready. You better be hanging on. And, uh, I mean, they, they called it to the exact lap, but, uh, and did I think about that? No. So Kevin, one of the things I, I liked uh, to see when we would go to tracks around the country. And I re distinctly remember when we go to Barber motorsports park is we'd pull in there for a weekend and we'd, We'd see the Kevin Schwan school truck there, and I would always say, "Oh, Kevin must be doing his school uh, teaching." Do you do you miss that doing that? Do you or was that something where you did it and been there, and you know it was a lot to do, and you're fine with the way things are now? Where where are you feeling about that school? And can you tell us how how that was for you when you did it? You know, it was. Um, I kind of got roped into it. Went back and helped Larry Pegram a little bit in 1999. And then in 2000, Suzuki said, well, if you want to work in racing again, you know, come work for us. So I did that. And then at the end of 2000, no, beginning of 2000, they introduced the GSX-R1000. And they did an intro at Road Atlanta. And I was living in Charlotte at the time. So they invited me to the intro. And that was where I got kind of roped into, we need to do a ride in school. Why don't you guys do it here at Road Atlanta? And we did eight years at Atlanta, I think either three or four years at Barber and then went back to Road Atlanta and did another year. But absolutely to to be able to to watch people come in and want you know and want to learn how to become a better rider. And some people who said they were riders just needed to learn to be riders. They weren't riders at all. Um, but to come in to, to bring somebody in and watch them over a two day program, watch them go from being somebody who almost couldn't keep the motorcycle on the track. Uh, to somebody who had complete control of the motorcycle, maybe not at a great rate of speed, but it's something that they could go ride the motorcycle or ride a motorcycle on the street and be safe doing it. Um, to me, it, it, it's something that being a kid growing up in a motorcycle dealership, uh, you know, if I'd go to a friend's house and my, my buddies would introduce me and say, oh, Kevin, he's the one, his parents owned the motorcycle dealership and the, the parents arm cross and they kind of look and scowl at you like, hmm. <laughs> we don't really want we don't really want you hanging around our kids that much so um to be able to to, to be able to to try and um help improve our images motorcyclists uh in, any chance i get to do that i'll jump at the opportunity and some of the times i mean we went to europe and did schools we went to greece we i mean we went all over the place france germany uh, and, and to get to do that and all the guys that were my instructors and some of the students that we got to meet uh, you know, times that uh, me and my instructor still talk about it today. They always come to Coda for the GP, 
And, uh, you know, we sit around for hours talking about stuff we've done and tracks. And, and of course, during school, Kevin did crash one GSXR 1000 in turn one at Road Atlanta. <laughs> it was a complete write-off. I actually got to do a school with you. Um, I did two. I did one at, in, one at Road Atlanta, and then we also did one at Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Yeah, that's right. We did do one at Indy. I forgot. We did especially we did several at Indy. Yeah, I was probably an hour or so away from lap record, but uh, the school <laughs> ended a little early for me. <laughs> um, you know, Kevin, it's funny you, you you mentioned about Road Atlanta, and I don't know. For me, I when I think of Road Atlanta, I I think of it as a Suzuki track. Not necessarily because Suzuki does great there or anything, but they always seem to have been associated with that track. And even more so, I think of that as your track. Um, did you, with the school and everything else, do you think you've done more laps at Road Atlanta than any other other track in in this country? And do you think of Road Atlanta as kind of being your track a little bit as well? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It was home to us for, like I said, eight years, and it was a great relationship. And, um, you know, I... I I, I jump at every opportunity I get to go back uh, to Road Atlanta, and I, I think Paul Carruthers said he was going to come out and pick me up so that we could go uh, to Moto America this year. Yeah, I'll well, do that. Well, actually, <laughs> that, that's my other question. I mean, I, I when a few years ago when you were working close with Yoshimura Suzuki and uh, kind of a, a rider coach or whatever, I mean, I know you worked with Blake quite a bit, and I used to enjoy – you know, seeing you there, you're always real friendly when I was doing stuff with Yamaha and we we get to talk once in a while and stuff. And I I really liked you being at the track. Um, do you think we'll see more of you at, at any Moto America rounds this year or in the future beyond Coda? Or uh, I am sure you'll be at Indy, I would think. Yeah, I am. Um... I'll be at some Moto America races, exactly which ones I'm not sure. But, um, you know, Laguna is always a fun one to try and get to. Uh, Indianapolis, like you just mentioned, I think would be a great one uh, as well. And uh, Atlanta's got a pretty sweet spot in my heart, too. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have to probably pick and choose a few, but uh, I don't know that we'll get to all of them. But <clears throat> it's sure neat watching, <clears throat> excuse me, watching American Championship racing um, continue to grow and get to that level that, uh, hopefully get all those manufacturers back involved and get it back to the level that it was uh, when we were producing world champions here in the U S. Now you, you keep a pretty keen eye on MotoGP and, and Moto2, Moto3 and know a lot of those riders. Do you, do you get calls from anybody? I mean, do you keep your eyes on up and coming riders or, or maybe even some MotoGP riders and give them advice? Is that something part of your repertoire still? Yeah. Rossi and I talk pretty regularly. <laughs> okay just kidding um, he, he, he is he is he is a buddy of mine and we do talk occasionally but it is not about riding or racing motorcycles it's uh it's typically about stuff away from the racetrack but um yeah i mean i i watch moto gp just like i watch moto america every every opportunity i get um I try and keep track on on the young kids coming up try and see what uh what americans we have that possibly here in america could make that move to uh to, to Moto GP or World Superbike, and you know, likewise, World Superbike. I think Garrett Gerloff's going to be going to do great this year. He's on a little junior Yamaha team, and hopefully, uh, he he has some great stuff. Uh, get some get some really good results if and when they get to racing. But um, no, I don't work with anybody directly. Um, you know, I, I have people call me and say, "Hey, do you want to come to the races? Do you want to coach? Do you want to?" 
and I like going to the races and, and enjoying the races. And if I'm there working with somebody, then it's just more work and it kind of takes the enjoyment out of the race being at the races and, and being able to socialize and hang out with everybody. But, uh, yeah, I, um, you know, I worked a little bit with Joe Roberts. We took him to the eight hour a couple, two, three years ago. Um, you know, and, and he's a good, fast kid, and it's great to see him in Moto2 doing as well as he is. Hey, speaking of MotoGP, Kevin, how how difficult would it be for those guys to be in the situation they're in now? Is Like, if you think back to, to your time and being a racer, how hard would it be to be in the situation they're in now where they're not racing and they don't know when they're going to race and the whole season's kind of in jeopardy? You know, it, it's got to be really, really difficult because one is when do you get testing? You know, you haven't even like Alex Renz, he's been on complete lockdown. They're not even allowed to go outside and ride dirt bikes. Um, you know, to not be able to be on a motorcycle of any kind, to be able to try and work on, you know, you, you just just your balance and your rhythm, whether you're riding a trials bike going two miles an hour, whether you're going on a MotoGP bike going 200, um, balance and and and, and, you know, what you do with your hands and how you steer the bike with your feet is all the same on all types of motorcycles. So to not be able to ride, not be able to be outside and not know when you're going to get to go back racing, I, I think would drive me absolutely bonkers. Um, it's it's tough knowing when you have a schedule and when you're going to go testing and when you're going to do this. And it's tough enough being ready for something that you know is going to happen, unlike stuff that you know they might call and say hey next week we're going to go race here or next week we're going to go race there but i think there's going to have to be a bit more leeway than just just seven days to be able to get the teams and get all the the you know all the all the distancing and all of um you know all the quarantine times done certain places for people to go race anywhere in the world right now so it's um as a rider it, it would drive be driving me crazy uh especially if i was Joe Roberts and knowing how well I had done at Qatar. And now when do I get to go back out and see if I can do that again? I mean, as a rider, when you're winning Grand Prix, even when you're winning and you're running at the front every weekend, you, you don't know when you get to that next track, how good is this bike going to be here? How good am I going to be here? Am I going to be able to string those things together and link those turns together like I did at that last race and be able to be at the front of this one uh, until you get on the bike and go out and watch the first couple of practice sessions? So. Time off for Joe right now must really be difficult, but it's it's got to be tough on all of them. All right, I have one more question. Do you looking back at your career? Do you is there any? Do you have any regrets or anything you do differently? You know, there's last laps of races. There's first laps of races. Phillip Island '89. Um, when your spot. flop flew off. Yeah, yeah. And the even worst part of that story is when I got in the safety car to be taken to the medical center. I get in the car and this guy looks at me and he goes, hey, man, he goes, I know how you feel. And I, 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 I don't even look at the guy. I just respond with how in the bleep, 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 bleep could you possibly know how I feel? <laughs> I got out of the car. I got to the medical center. I walked up the stairs and I got to the top of the stairs to walk in the trailer. I looked back and it was Greg Hansford. So, oh, <laughs> not oh, only had I just no. <laughs> not, a, not only had I make myself look like such an idiot crashing out of the, on the first lap, looking over my shoulder, <laughs> I had just humiliated myself in one of the best motorcycle racers ever in the world. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, wow. but yeah, of, 
maybe that's the one regret I have is that I insulted Greg Hansford. Um, but yeah, um, those, you know, those mistakes, you know, six to go in Jerez with Eddie chasing me five seconds behind. Why didn't I just slow down? Instead, I crashed and right. didn't score any points at all. But for the most part, a- absolutely. I, um, you know, it's stuff I can stand around and talk about and laugh about now. Um, you know, and probably laughed about it the night after I did it, but, um, or the night that I did it. So it's, uh, it was fun. I, I've got tons of great, tons of great memories, tons of great friends and, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't change a thing. That's cool. Well, uh, Kevin, I want to ask you about one of the things I enjoy seeing are your social media posts where you're, you're fishing and you've got the tank, the lab with you. And, and, uh, it just seems like you're right in your total comfort zone and enjoying it. Have you, so couple parts to this question have you always been an avid fisherman and what's your favorite kind of fishing to do my uh as a kid growing up my grandparents uh had a house on 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 a lake called lake livingston just outside of houston and uh i spent every day of the summer before i got old enough for my parents to make me work at our dealership i spent every day of every summer when i wasn't in school fishing with my grandfather um you know, fishing in freshwater on a lake to catch largemouth bass, white bass, striped bass. Um, you know, now now that uh, I am fishing without my grandfather, it's down at the coast fishing in saltwater. I still enjoy fishing freshwater, and there's still nothing more exciting than catching a, a big largemouth bass. But uh, down here at the coast in Texas, Speckled trout uh, is one of the things we catch that fish. I sent you a picture of Paul the other day, maybe one of the biggest trout I've ever caught. And I send it to people that, that I know that fish and like, Oh my God, I've never seen one that big, but uh, also redfish. Uh, today when I was out, we were in this little lake, really shallow water right on the back of a, a place called the Aransas wildlife refuge. And uh, three alligators came sliding into the water beside us. <laughs> We were in the boat. Wow. We weren't out of we weren't out of the boat, but uh, it was funny because I've got some video and some photos, and I'll uh, I'll send them to both of you when I get done. But they're probably eight foot, nine foot long. You know, I'm glad I wow. glad I was in a a, a twenty two or twenty three foot boat, and not in a small little canoe because I reckon they'd take the canoe and just flip it over with you in it if they were mad enough. But um, you know, and wow, it's just it's it's so nice being out there, being you know watching dolphin swim watching you know alligators in the water sometimes uh during certain seasons we have whooping cranes down here so you get to see them and i mean talk about a bird that is just you see it standing off in the distance you're like wow that's not very big you get within 20 feet or 30 feet of them and i mean it's as big as a small airplane <laughs> so it, it's fun to uh to be out and relaxing and enjoying uh enjoying life that's for sure I mean, for me, I, I just relax. It's relaxing to see those posts because it just looks like a great, great place to be. And like I say, you got Tank with you, which is awesome to have. always have your companion. Um, Kevin, thank you for being on this podcast with us. It's uh, We've done a fair number of these, and it was high time we had you on, and we, we can't wait to have you uh, at one of our rounds and catch up and everything. And, and you know, it's great that, that uh, you're focused on Ameri- <laughs> Excuse me, the next uh, American – champions just like we are and wanting that to happen so thanks so much for joining us thank you guys it's uh it's a it's a treat to uh, tell your boss wayne that i said hey and uh wayne thanks for letting me be on
Awesome. <laughs> okay, great. And I want to, you know, thanks to the fans for listening to our podcast. Please subscribe to Moto America Live Plus, our popular subscription streaming service. And also don't forget to get your race weekend tickets, especially for this uh, round two coming up at Road America at the end of this month. Um, there's camping, there's uh, fans are going to be allowed there. And if, if it's anything like that first round without fans, the bracing was fantastic and Road America is a great place to be. So go to uh, motoamerica.com to uh, sign up for our Live Plus and also get your race race weekend tickets. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks, guys.